Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast about research methods in practice. In this episode, we talk with Elizabeth Cherry, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Manhattanville College. She recently published a piece in the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, which we refer to in the podcast as JCE, with Michaela DeSusi and Coulter Ellis that examines their own relationships to their ethnographic projects. Welcome to the podcast, and we're here today to talk about a methods-based piece that you published with co-authors Michaela DeSusi and Coulter Ellis in the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography. And um, this is an interesting piece because we'll talk in the podcast both about your project, a research project that you conducted, and then this piece that kind of explores the methodological components of that project. So why didn't we just get started um, with an introduction to this piece and to your work within that piece? Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. Um, This particular piece for the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography um, came out of sort of happenstance. I was doing field work in France, and the first person that I interviewed said, wow, you're the second American sociology graduate student to interview me. And of course, my first thought is, no, this is my work. I can't have anyone scooping it. Luckily, we were doing um, different projects, but similar enough that when I contacted Michaela, um, she and I immediately started thinking of co-authored papers that we could do. And then the following year, I met Coulter Ellis, and found that he was doing research on cattle ranchers and through the process of him doing his research went from being a meat eater to being a vegan. So then we all started meeting together and saying this is something that we could work on in terms of our consumption, um, not just identities but our consumption practices and how our field work affected what we do, um, not just as researchers, but as people living in the world. So instead of just looking at reflexivity in terms of how the researcher might affect the interview or the research process, we're also looking at how the research process affects the person doing the field work. Excellent. And let's um, get some more insight on what that field work was that you were doing. Um, And so why don't you kind of describe the project, tell us what your central research questions are and what your methodological design was. Right, right. So I guess I'll start with my research project since that came first and then we were able to have the JCE piece. Um, So I was doing my dissertation research on animal rights activists in France and the United States. Um, So I had done almost two years of field work in the United States before I went to France for one year. In the United States, I also interviewed 35 activists, and in France, I interviewed 37 activists. So I was looking at animal rights activists of all types, people who were in local organizations, um, grassroots organizations, as well as national or international, more bureaucratic organizations. Um, So with my project, I was interested in measuring movement success 
and more specifically comparing the French movement to the U.S. movement. So why is the United States animal rights movement more successful than the French movement and how does culture play a part in that? So I was looking at external culture within each country and I was looking at what I call movement culture. Um, since we're talking about that, what were some of the major findings that you that you pulled from that project that then informed um, this this next project, which is the JCE article? First, I was looking at how dominant culture affected the tactical repertoires or the toolkits of those social movements. So I'm looking at um, strategies and tactics and how dominant culture affected how those tools work or don't work. So what I found was that the external culture worked to expand the strategic and tactical repertoire of the U.S. movement while it contracted that of the French movement. So by that I mean the exact same tools worked really well in the United States and they didn't work at all in France. Sometimes they would work against the French movement. So then within that, I said, okay, this is the tools that activists have at their disposal. How do they actually choose among those tools? So within that, I started looking at... Um, the sort of movement culture or the institutional logics within each movement that the activists use to guide their strategic and tactical decision making. So in France, they worked with a institutional logic of consistency. So they were really interested in choosing strategies and tactics that fit with their beliefs, even if they knew that those weren't going to work. Whereas the United States activists, in contrast, they sacrificed this um, philosophical consistency in order to win smaller achievable goals. So they were working with an institutional logic of pragmatism, saying we're going to do what works even if we don't believe in it. That's fascinating. And, you know, you're, a, you're the researcher here, you're embedded in your project, um, and I know that this reflexivity is kind of what led you to the, this project we're discussing, which is the food for thought piece. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background about how that was designed and how that came together? Yes, thank you, um, because that was something that I think all of us had thought a lot about, as all qualitative, re qualitative researchers do, but... I had specifically gone into the project with an action orientation, knowing that, you know, myself as a vegan animal rights activist was going to play a specific role in my fieldwork. Michaela knew the same thing, knowing that, you know, she was a huge supporter of local foods and she worked at this, um, you know, local farm. And this gave her a certain amount of cachet with the local chefs that she was trying to interview. Coulter, when he started his research, um, he was really interested in sort of defending cattle ranchers. He felt that they had been unjustly maligned by environmental sociologists and animal rights um, activists. And then when he started to do his field work, he started to change his ideas and became more critical of the um, beliefs that he went into the project holding. So through all of our... Um, field work, we were noting, as you know, anyone does when they're taking their methodological notes and engaging in reflexivity, we were noting that you know, sometimes we didn't get the answers that we thought we were going to get, or sometimes people were um, sort of questioning why we're doing this project. And in talking with each other, once we decided we were going to do this project, this is why we think that 
collaborative reflexivity is a really helpful tool because everybody knows in doing reflexivity on your own that you as a researcher matter, but you don't know exactly how it matters until you start comparing your experiences with others and saying, oh, well, maybe this is why these activists gave me the party line because they thought that I was an opponent who needed to be convinced of their... Um, you know, belief system, or maybe this is why these people were so, um, you know, friendly and open to me, because I was able to engage in this presentation of self that made it, um, you know, clear that I was, in their opinion, an ally. Um, so we, we really wanted to further what we were doing in terms of reflexivity, um, so that we could see not just how, or not just that we you know, affected the field work, but how our consumption identities and practices affected the field work. Yeah, those are fascinating research questions. And, and it seems like a really innovative approach to have this, this collaborative or kind of group-based reflexivity. So maybe you could speak to kind of how, um, how you design a sort of autoethnographic study. And, you know, is it topic-driven or methodological approach-driven? And did you guys think about other approaches and how you could kind of answer these questions that you just posed? Right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, none of us has a background in autoethnography. And I still sort of hesitate to call it that just because I have um, some of my best friends do autoethnography. Um, but seriously, a lot of my friends have done really uh, compelling autoethnographic projects and I feel like this was a little bit different in the sense that we were comparing our reflexivity notes so all of us had taken um, sort of methodological or reflexive notes while we were doing our field work and then we were comparing those after the fact so I think culture still was engaging in some field work um, I was almost done with my dissertation. Michaela was not far behind. Um, so pretty much all of us were done being in the field, and we were comparing the notes that we already had. So I guess in a sense it might even, um, and maybe the methods professors are going to hate me for making this analogy, but it might um, compare a little bit more to content analysis <laughs> in some ways than to autoethnography just because we we weren't changing our experiences, um, you know, or our experiences weren't changing as we did this project. Our field work was done, and then we were analyzing um, how we interacted with our participants in the field. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and why don't you tell us, you know, after you, you are conducting this kind of collaborative reflexivity project. Uh, what, what did you learn? What were kind of some of the central findings to this, you know, kind of post hoc project that you guys uh, are working on together? What did you learn? Yes. So this was, um, this was actually really fun. And I'm about to uh, propose to a friend that she and I do this collaborative reflexivity as well, because these are things that we didn't realize were significant about our projects until we compared our experiences. So we found, I guess, sort of two main areas where our consumption identities and practices came into play. And the first one was sort of entering the field and starting to do field work. So when, um, 
you know, we entered the field, we had to gain access to participants and show them who we were. All of us were studying people who were engaging in sort of contentious um, consumption or animal-based practices. So they also had their own allies and opponents. Um, so they were interested in us um, you know, not uh, trying to infiltrate them or be a spy for some other side. We had to prove who we were. So I was able to do that by sending a link to the animal rights organization I'd been working with um, when I was in grad school. So I was clearly documented as someone who had been working with this group for a while. I was able to send them some past publications and say, look, I've been working on veganism that shows that I'm you know, not just personally, but also academically invested in promoting animal rights. So this is who I am. Um, you know, Coulter was able to pull upon his identity as someone from rural Idaho with family members who worked in um, cattle ranching. And Michaela was able to pull upon her experiences working in the farm. So this is how we initially got in. But then once we were there, people wanted to test us and say, are you really who you say you are? They weren't as uh, suspicious as that. But um, Michaela had a really amazing story about some people wouldn't interview her until they saw her eat foie gras because they wanted to make sure she wasn't some animal rights activist trying to infiltrate them. So she ate a lot of things that I never would have been able to eat. So, you know, her project was essentially off limits for me. I would not have been able to gain access to these people. Uh, simultaneously, she had, um, well, I guess this gets into outcomes. Um, she had different experiences talking with animal rights activists. So just to put this into um, perspective, the first part was how we get into the field and how we gain trust with our participants. And then the second part that we found was important was what did we find? So our identities and practices, our consumption identities and practices affected our outcomes. So this was where we found that people, since they're engaging in these contentious practices, either viewed us as allies or people to convert. And this was really clear for Michaela and myself, because in some cases we interviewed the exact same people. So we were able to see this was a pretty different interview. Um, Michaela found that when she was interviewing animal rights activists, they often gave her sort of the party line and tried to convert her rather than giving her, um, you know, answers to the questions she had asked. And I found the same thing when I was doing one of my phone interviews. I mostly interviewed people in person that I had already conducted field work with, but I did do some phone interviews with people I hadn't met. And I was interviewing one activist with a national organization. And every time I asked him a question, he would answer with, well, these uh, factory farms abuses are really horrible. Let me tell you about how the chickens are treated. And I'm thinking, why is he answering this way? That has nothing to do with the question. So then I started to intersperse some information about myself, like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was doing this kind of protest, people reacted this way. And, oh, yeah, I've been vegan for 10 years, so I totally understand. And after I had given enough sort of information about myself, he started actually answering my questions. So this was where we thought um, we never really would have known that this was a difference until we had compared our um, our interviews and our field notes in terms of how people answered our questions. Yeah, 
That's so fascinating. And what a unique opportunity to kind of compare data in that way. That's not always possible, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. I hope that another, um, you know, outcome of this project is that more people see these types of instances as opportunities for collaboration, because I will admit, and Michaela knows this too, everyone feels this way. You know, when you're starting your dissertation research, you want to be the only person doing this project. So my first instinct was, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's someone else doing this project. I'm ruined. But then once, you know, I found out who it was and she and I started corresponding, we realized that this was, I mean, I guess just the fact that, you know, I reached out to her rather than saying, okay, I've got to, you know, bury my enemy or whatever, um, you know, was proof that, that we were more interested in collaboration. But I think that, um, you know, this would be a good opportunity for other researchers thinking, you know, people who are working in the same area, perhaps you don't just collaborate on um, empirical work, but you can also collaborate on methodological work to see how who you are affected what you did and what you found. Yeah, and let's um, talk a minute too about the theoretical framing of the, the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography piece. So how did you sort of frame this, this methods project with Coulter and Michaela, and, and what did you draw upon as you framed your questions and your analysis of your own work? Right, so we started out when we were thinking about this. Um, I had written quite a bit about feminist research methods and reflexivity, so we used that as a basis, just thinking about what are the um, you know basic principles of reflexivity, how do we know what we know, um, how we interrogate ourselves as participants or co-participants in the research. But we didn't feel like that um, actually got at the heart of what it was that all three of us were experiencing. And I think it was Michaela who had found this um, previous 2003 JCE article by Brooke Harrington, where she was talking about um, identity and fieldwork and how your... Um, your social identity characteristics are viewed as more or less important by your participants. So we took um, Harrington's four postulates on identity and fieldwork and used that as sort of the basis for which we organized our findings. And then within that, we used the um, feminist work on reflexivity and identity to inform that. So it was a little bit of... Um, I guess I could say, grounded theory approach to what it was we were finding first, but we didn't um, have the overarching structure until we found that Harrington piece to really say, okay, this is how we can understand what it was that we found. And we usually ask after this how you, you know, collected or accessed uh, your data and your sampling strategy, but... Um, you know, I think for our purposes, talking about this methods piece, you know, it's your own data, which is kind of a, a different, a different model than we usually discuss. But you know, why don't we talk about some of the challenges of employing this method, um, of this this collaboration? And did you have any sort of missteps or, or kind of challenges that you all had to work through as you're figuring out how to frame this paper and how to how to uh, explore this idea of reflexivity? I guess the toughest part would be that, as I'm sure you know, doing this podcast, people have 
a lot of, um, I don't want to say shocking, but there's a lot of emotional experiences that go into field work, and we all go in thinking, you know, this is the most important story that I have, or this is the defining moment in my field work, and to try to take that emotion out and look at what it was you were experiencing from an analytic perspective, I think was the hardest part for us. We had a really hard time cutting our favorite stories or saying, you know, we have to keep this one in. So it was, um, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done reflexivity wise was stopping, um, stopping looking at this from a more emotional perspective and trying to look at it from this, even though none of us believe in pure objectivity, a more objective perspective to find the patterns between our, our projects and not just present the sexy parts or the scary parts, <laughs> I guess. Another often discussed idea in our field is the positionality of the researcher, which is central here to this project. So, um, you know, how did you talk about, think about uh, positionality and how does this kind of represent itself in the, in the piece? Positionality was key to my own personal, um, you know, dissertation research. My identity factored into the entire topic that I wanted to study. I wanted to do something that would help um, animal rights activists, so I engaged in action research from the very beginning. I wanted to study something that would help the movement, um, rather than, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, I can't wait to study strategies and tactics and help see how the KKK will be more effective, you know, and this is what Kathleen Blee says about her research, you know, she studies things that are not going to necessarily help further the Ku Klux Klan, but it helps us understand the Ku Klux Klan. Um, Kathleen Blee's work being more amazing field work that everyone should read. So I was also very cognizant of my identity as an activist and as a vegan in terms of this allowing me access to different people um, and in terms of allowing me to, I think, more quickly get into data collection. Um, because as some of my interviewees said, you know, we speak the same language, so it's easy for us to talk to one another. So this positionality was something that I had been considering since the get-go. Um, and I know that Michaela and Coulter did as well, because Coulter said that he was initially interested in doing this project because he found that um, cattle ranchers were being maligned by environmental sociologists. So he wanted to do a study that would help better understand them. That didn't turn out the way that he thought it would. Um, he ended up changing some of his beliefs. Um, but Michaela was interested in, you know, doing a project that fit with her, not fit with, um, but that reflected her beliefs on local farms and artisanal foods. So each of us knew that our consumption identities mattered to our participants. And this is where, going back to some of our findings, um, you know, we found that our positionality affected what we found, where Michaela and I got different answers to similar questions from the same interviewees, or where I got the boilerplate answers about, um, you know, factory farming from this activist until he knew who I was. So 
this idea of positionality was already something that we were working with in our individual projects, but that was what drove our entire JCE piece, was trying to better understand our positionality and how not only how did our consumption identities and practices affect the data that we collected, but also how it affected us. And this is where Coulter comes in in terms of his um, consumption identity and practices changing by virtue of doing his research. Yeah, that's, it's just a, a really fascinating approach. Um, I love it. So when you were writing, you know, you come together, the three of you, um, based on these shared experiences, and you think about writing this, this piece and doing this project, what were you thinking of in terms of your audience? So primarily we were thinking of other qualitative researchers as our audience. We really believed that doing this collaborative reflexivity was useful to us and we hope that it would be useful to other people. I could see in um, you know, research methods classes at the undergraduate or graduate level, people doing group projects, um, comparing their experiences and seeing how they see the exact same instance in different ways. I know this is actually a typical um, exercise that people do. And I don't know if you've ever read, we cited it in the paper, um, Reuben May and Mary Patillo McCoy. Um, Reuben May was on my master's committee, I feel I have to add. But we read in my one of my graduate school methods classes, we read their co-authored piece, Do You See What I See?, where they were doing field work in the exact same arena, and then they would compare their notes and found that they had found completely different things. So I think this puts um, sort of questions about generalizability and especially questions about validity into relief when you say we looked at the exact same thing and we saw something different and that's important for us to think about as researchers um, to question what did we find and how valid it may or may not be. When we wrap up these interviews we ask um our interviewees to share with us some practical details or tricks of the trade when it comes to these types of projects. So is there anything you could offer our listeners um, in terms of advice? With the JCE piece, I think it's hard to talk about sort of tips for that. I guess I have a couple of tips in terms of um, conducting qualitative research projects that would enable you to do these kind of practices. And then I have a side a side tip that I guess I'll start with. This would be, um, I call it bonus learning in my classes. But when I did interviews in France, I found that being the charming foreigner was so useful. Um, I found this originally when I was an undergrad. I did a year of study abroad in France, and I was studying um, sociology and French. So I just took regular soci sociology and French. I was studying sociology and cinema studies in a French university. So I would take these regular sociology classes with other students, and one of them was um, about life history interviewing. So I went to go interview my friend's roommate, who was this older fellow? And I'm asking him, you know, what does he do? And 
you know, he gave me this answer and he used a word I didn't understand, Munuisier, which of course I remember now. So this means that you work with wood, you do sort of decorations in wood. And I said, okay, you know, I had to ask him about that because I honestly didn't understand what he said. And when I asked him if he could explain that further, he went back and told me sort of his whole life story about how he was an alcoholic and he left his family and he joined this foreign military service. And I'm thinking, how did I get this information just because I didn't know this one word? So I went back. That was I was an undergrad. And this was one of my first experiences with interviewing. And I've always used the charming foreigner in my interviewing. And this is basically, I think, a version of making the familiar strange that everyone gets taught but I sort of learned that accidentally the first time it's easier to do that when you're in another culture and you're not pretending to not understand something um, but trying to very practically in some senses um, make the familiar strange and you know, put your assumptions of knowledge aside is actually very helpful in getting um, richer detail and, in some cases, an entirely different story than you got the first time. So I always tell my students that, you know, that story. Don't pretend like you know what they're saying. Just ask them and they will tell you so many more things. Um, but then thinking about tips and tricks for um, being able to do the methodological approach that Coulter and Michaela and I did for this JCE piece. We never would have been able to do this if we didn't all make extensive um, methodological or reflexive notes while we were doing our research projects. So I just went back and looked at mine in preparation for this and just found them so illuminating. We were able, or I was able to, and then we collectively see the emotions that we had when we first entered the field, see some of the questions towards the beginning of our fieldwork experiences, like, my interviewees keep saying this, I don't know what they mean. Or even just, I'm really frustrated with not, you know, living at home and doing this, you know, somewhat difficult field work, like getting everything out into these methodological notes was very useful in, one, keeping them separate from our actual findings, and then two, having a basis upon which we could go back and compare our experiences in the field. And I know this is something that a lot of uh, professors try to instill in their students, and I'm glad that all of us got the research methods training beat into us to say, yes, I'm taking my methodological notes. And yes, they actually turned out to be very useful. Um, not that I doubted my professors. Right, because <laughs> right, it's a lot of work to, to do that added layer of kind of checking in with yourself as you're trying so hard to document what's happening in the field. Exactly. But it was so fruitful, um, you know, for us double-checking what it was that we were finding and for us to be able to compare our experiences and experiences and see what was important in terms of data collection. And then finally, um, you know, this is a really innovative project. And so any parting thoughts on just why you think this is, you know, a very useful tool or, um, you know, some of the main advantages to doing a project like this? 
Yeah, I think that this is a very useful tool for qualitative researchers in general. We're always faced with questions about the validity of our research or the generalizability, and not everyone is seeking to, you know, make grand sweeping generalizable conclusions from their research. A lot of symbolic interactionists, and Coulter definitely is one, um, say I'm interested in meaning making at this individual level or at this micro level. Um, but for anyone who's interested in being able to sort of defend their claims and say that the research that they gathered was at the very least valid, that they knew that they were, um, you know, getting answers to the questions that they asked. This is a good way to, I guess, gauge the extent to which you as an individual may have affected the data collection process. And this is why I'm saying, um, you know, I'm about to propose to one of my friends who's doing a similar project to my new project that we engage in some of this collaborative reflexivity because we both have similar positions as you know sociological researchers entering these new fields where we are not the experts and it's going to be interesting to see the ways in which um, you know our identities might shape what we find so I think this is a good sort of added methodological tool that people could use those extensive methodological notes that we always take because we know we're supposed to take them. <laughs> right. Well, this has been a super interesting conversation and, um, and leaves me with lots of, of new ideas on how to kind of reflect back my own work. So thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logason, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give methods a chance. <laughs>